0: You're listening to the Funny Women's Survival Guide, the uplifting tongue-in-cheek podcast where we chat to British comedy's funniest females in an attempt to cheer up and entertain the nation in these uncertain times. And here's your host, Alexis Strum. Hello and thank you for joining me. I hope you've had a wonderful fortnight. On today's episode, we have a chat with our two very special guests, Andy Osho and Athena Koblenu, and the ever awesome Becky Singh from Funny Women also joins us in the studio. Now, primarily, we talk about racial diversity in comedy, uh, the black experience, risk aversion, commissioner bias, barriers to getting that seat at the table. But, oh my God, we also go completely off topic, and wow, what a conversation we had. Um, We just went really wide and ended up talking about how to future-proof your comedy career. So stay tuned to the end for an amazing bit of advice about how to get your comedy out there. It is well worth the wait, folks. Well, welcome to the Funny Women Survival Guide, Andy Osho and Athena Kablenu, And Becky Singh from Funny Women, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. It's Friday today.
1: Is it? I don't know yeah. the days. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. that. Good. I thought it would help.
2: It's kind of know, a public service the... announcement, isn't it? Like <laughs> letting people know what day of the week it is. Yeah,
1: nice. <laughs>
0: exactly. Honestly, this is what we have to do. Um, so you've both been pretty busy over lockdown, like comparatively... I'm impressed.
1: Yeah, I, I don't want to brag about it, but <laughs> you feel like no, what, what happened was I had a, a series of very fortunate events leading up to lockdown, career wise. So I was, you know, m- most people know that there's no stand up comedy and that's what I was doing, but I had lots of things happen that kind of um, accelerated my writing career. So when stand up dropped dead, all of a sudden I was able to, um, to sort of do that. And then, sort of, people remembered Black Lives Matter, and my inbox just filled up. Um, so, lots of strange and unfortunate things happened to make me busy. Um, but I, I've always said that I'm not too, I'm never going to be ashamed about take, making money out of white people's guilt. Like, it's not going to yeah. be a problem for me.
2: Like, oh, <laughs>
1: You know, as long as I feel like I deserve to be in the room, I'll, I'll happily take that booking. And so I've been, I've been benefiting from that. I don't know if that's your experience, Andy, but I certainly...
2: <laughs> no, I guess white people don't feel as guilty around me. So maybe <laughs> no. like, I need to sort of ring that out a bit more. <laughs> they, I mean, they feel a bit guilty. I've been, you know, somewhat busy, but...
0: <laughs> what does the guilt feel like? Like, Athena, so when you're sensing it off people, how does that manifest...
1: Oh, it's, my, it's it's, offers of work. It's work that people have been sniffing, people who've been sniffing around me for a little while have suddenly come through with the offers. And whilst the timing is questionable, I don't know. I, 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 w- I don't understand why people have to think an extra bit longer when it comes to giving black and brown people work. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Because I haven't done anything that other people, um, so I've done things that the same people have done who've been given the same work, um, and I don't know why, what it takes for people just to take the plunge and put me in the room because it's, you know, it's just, I, I'm, I've got a heartbeat, I've got brain, yeah. what more do you want? Um, so th- even if you have credentials, when you're black and brown, there's always, well, what about the audience? Do you do I have mm. the right voice? Do you know the right people? And, you know, it's just, I, I wish I could explain it. or well, I can, racism. <laughs> but (laughs) but, we uh, are considered (laughs) like I I
2: think people aren't even conscious of how they consider us to be high risk even though like you say we've got exactly the same credentials sometimes more than other people that are just like seemingly whisked through the door and you know given opportunities on the platter do you know what I mean like if we were white guys in our 20s in skinny jeans then we wouldn't be having to have this conversation but I feel it from some like decision makers of how they perceive me as a risk they won't say it and they're terribly polite and lovely and they tell me they really want to work with me but it, it it's it's a lot of lip service rather than things actually like being put in place
0: and in comedy i think that's so layered because as a woman anyway you're a high risk i mean we've sort of had we've had a few guests on here talking about pitches that they've done for sitcoms or whatever and they're quite high profile but still they get that feedback of yeah but is your character likable and as a mm. woman you've got to have a a, a likable character you've got to be aesthetically pleasing you've got to um you know not um eliminate the uh, the opinions of the masses, etc. You've got to kind of fit into such a very small box. And then you've got a layer of race on top of that. So, yeah, the opportunities are, I guess, up until now, very, very small to push forward and not be seen as high risk.
2: Yeah, because I guess they're thinking uh, the, the, you know, audiences are watching our work and if they don't see themselves reflected in it, they won't be able to relate for some reason. But like, uh, not everybody lives on a, you know, Peckham council estate, but everyone gets only fools and horses. So it's kind of like what they're, they're underestimating the, the audiences really.
1: Yeah. I they're telling so. on themselves sorry to interrupt but they're just telling them yeah. on themselves when commissioners give you feedback of what they think the audience do or don't like they're actually talking about their own internal prejudices mm. and issues. yeah and you know it, it is a form of right supremacy to say well people understand you but i'm expected to understand
2: George mm.
1: and shakespeare and i do actually i do you know um so it's it's not a stretch to say that my art is as valid and as um, it's no stretch at all to say my art is as valid and as important as anyone else's, And that someone has to put on a kind of different hat to, to take it on board. It's like, right. it's, it's, it's the same, it's the story. It doesn't, it's not maybe told by someone who looks like you. It's probably told, told by someone who sees their chicken better than you, but it's still relatable. You know, it's, it's, and it's, and the thing is, you know what? They, half of me thinks they know this. It's just in order for them to then make the changes they would need to make to accept it their mates would have to make space
0: yeah
1: So, in order for me to get into some of the rooms that I've been in some people have had to not be in those rooms and mm-hmm. they can't quite bring themselves to tear themselves away from that sense of entitlement like oh but that's my mate oh he's been doing it for 10 years oh but you know I know h- her dad's de- dentist dog or whatever connection they yeah. have I don't know. so you know if, but if you have limited seats at the table and there are limited seats at the table in the creative industries in order for us to come in someone's got to move but I don't care because like I said, our voices and our stories are as valid.
2: Well, and also it's not like those seats at the table belong to those people, because I think sometimes that's the perception people have. Mm. And I've heard this sometimes even from like agents and casting directors talking about where diversity is brought into a show, as though those actors that are from diverse backgrounds have taken roles mm. that are meant to, yeah. like as though the default is this role is for a white person, but now, because we've got to have this boring thing called inclusion, Um, that my white actor can't get that job because now you've got to get it and that and that mindset is is really um sort of nasty really and and it's got to be undone so that seat at the table never belongs to that person and that room that they're making is justified you know what i mean so who holds the
0: keys because from what i'm hearing especially with casting directors so casting directors kind of have to defer to the script and the decisions colorblind casting is you know is still dependent on a group of people going yeah actually it doesn't matter what color that character is they've all got to come together and make that decision but who ultimately would you say in your line of work so across I mean I know you both really prolific Athena you write for lots of news shows um and Andy you do your creativity podcast as well as acting as well as now you're writing a book so who ultimately holds the keys to you being able to get those seats at the table?
2: Well, it's not like there's one person with a big jangling sort of key ring. There's just so many organisations. That's really what it comes down to. I mean, obviously, the BBC, a huge employer of creatives and, uh, you know, the nation consumes a lot of their material. So people there have got to start making room, um, even in publishing, which is now a world I've found myself in. Yeah. you know, there's big conversations being had now with the Black Writers Guild, which has just started, uh, you know, g- going to uh, CEOs of these publishing houses and saying, guys, okay, fix up because it's, this, yeah. <laughs> it's looking hella white at the moment. So so conversations are having happen, having, to happen everywhere on it, uh, you know, on every level. But it's also not about just senior decision makers. It's about it happening at all levels because that sort of bring getting your mates in thing it's not always necessarily malicious, but it just is easy. You know, yeah. if, you're, if your thing gets commissioned, like, really quick and you've got to populate your, your you know, show with, like, heads of departments super quick, who are you going to get? It's the people that you've worked with already. Mm-hmm. But if those, the, those Black and ethnic minority, um, you know, heads of departments never get a look in, how can they be your go-to person? So at some point, that cycle has got to break on all levels because... Because I think there's been a huge focus of, on diversity and inclusion in front of the camera. But what happens is behind the camera, it's yeah. still white. And so the sensibility of these shows that, gets crea- the shows get, that get created is still very white. Mm-hmm. And so how black people and brown people and, you know, all kinds of people from different social groups get represented is still through the lens of essentially white men.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's really, when those
2: when that decision making and all the all the way that the the whole infrastructure of shows is put together when that's broken up that's when TV will really start to look different. Yeah. And that's absolutely
3: true from my point of view of being someone who's behind the camera in the TV world that it is it's hugely about risk but I would disagree that there's not one person holding the keys, I think that the keys belong to the money people. So a lot of the times I hear commissioners are not commissioning enough of this and that and they should be taking risks. Actually they're not the ones who ultimately make the decision and that's I think the thing that commissioners don't reveal an awful lot of the time. They say yeah I I I can commission this, that and the other and they have that on their CV that they did that. But actually someone above them and a few different people above them had to okay their commission. And there's an awful lot of the money people going, will our advertisers be interested? Will they support this? Will, will this yeah. audience that you're bringing in be the audience that our advertisers think will buy their product? And that's sort of where it, it has to be it, ultimately from, for most businesses, and TV is a business, It has to be a financial decision. And this is where we have huge problems. You're right. It works on all different levels as well, though, because you've got producers and they're going, I want to keep my job. I have to work with the people that I know are not going to mess this up for me. And it is; it's a vicious cycle. And the more someone gets that work, the more work, the more they're trusted, the more work they get offered. So there's a whole, there's loads of different levels and reasons why this still happens, while we have this sort of, just this narrow pool of people being drawn
0: from. I wonder if writer's rooms hold some sort of promise because as you say, I mean, there are the stereotypical um, indie white male type of comedian who then off the back of his success, what he's always been promised, will then get his own sitcom, et cetera, but he'll be writing it himself. Whereas in the States, the writer's room model is actually much more supportive and the opportunity for diversity is there. I feel like we are sort of, I'm hearing lots more writer's rooms opening up and, and, um, you know, opportunities being given to writers from more diverse backgrounds. What's your experience been of that? Do you still feel like it's a very closed, you know, as you say, one man writes for his mate and then his other friend from Cambridge then directs it, et cetera? Are you seeing it opening up?
1: That's very much the case. Uh, so first of all, the whole, we, there's a constant debate about writer's rooms in this country. The idea that, um, you know, America Great makes better shows because they have writer's rooms and we make okay shows because we've got one person um, hmm. struggling for two years over six episodes. And, or, you know, give that, invest in that person, right? Um, um, yes, people are getting their mates to write in their shows, but there are still opportunities. For example, most writers have additional writers now. However which writers are being given the additional writers and, and which writers aren't. I'm, yeah. only, I, I'm really I, I don't want to say, but I've just seen with my own eyes people, some people get all the support in the world and other people just oh get told your script's not good enough, never mind. And it's hold yeah. on a minute, how come that person got a right help writing and how come another person didn't? And you, you, you just have to look at the credits for TV shows. You, mm. you know you see something, you I can't be oh wow, this person got this TV show, that's amazing. Then you see all the additional writers in the credits yeah. and you think oh I didn't I didn't get that maybe or maybe I did I don't know I just don't want to implicate myself into anything but that's interesting um I feel like um it, it feels like the conversation about writer's rooms I don't particularly like it because I know people aren't investing them in this mm. so it's always sort of at the end like they don't want to pay for them and so unless they but they get around that by finding someone they like and then saying oh we'll get you additional writers in to yeah. know, punch up your script or, or, or whatever. Um, but there's a lot writers' rooms, obviously, are very active with topical writing. And those rooms do provide a great way to get access to the industry. However, the pay is horrible. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> the pay is horrible. Like, you know, you, re- working on writers' rooms, topical shows, is not a great way to make a living. Um, so yeah. it's like the place you do have access to writing is also the place where you don't really have access to. To an opportunity to change your life, uh, which is—I guess it's a way in. It's a way in. I think. It's a way in,
0: yeah. Both of you um do a lot of different things, and I think having your uh, without like, you know, I don't want to demean it by saying having your fingers in lots of pies, but without having your fingers in lots of pies at the moment, I can't see how people will survive in the industry regardless of your background. You have to be trying, throwing a lot of stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, and I think sometimes it's whatever gets you, whatever propels you forwards, you're always going to get, you're always going to find that writers rooms, yeah, there's the dynamic and the politic of that as well, which is probably as vile as the pay, but it's a way in. Um, and, and I know that both of you have come from like very different backgrounds as well. So Andy, did you start off in TV production? Did I, I, I was reading up on you, is that, is that correct?
2: Yeah, I was in, well, post-production and broadcast for 10 years. And then, yeah, then uh, moved across to acting about 2003 and then uh, spent most of my time on a reception desk. So I was like, uh, why isn't this working out? And so that's when I started doing stand up.
0: Okay. And, and what was the, how was the transition from acting to stand up? Did you feel that you had more power
2: in that? Uh, yeah, definitely. And that was the reason that I did it because, well, I mean, I love stand up anyways, but I'd always, it, it just not occurred as something that I could do. I just didn't feel brave enough. The usual thing that everyone says about stand up, like scariest thing yeah. ever. And then I looked up some actresses that I really liked and I was like, how did they get where they are? And they had all, it happened to be that all the ones that I picked had all done stand-up. So I was like, well, I'm still not doing it. Um, And then, um, yeah, it just got to a point where it was just like, I got to do this. And partly it was because I just wasn't getting enough stage time with the acting work. And I just felt like I wanted a bit more control over my creative life. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try this thing. No, no commitment. No, I'm just going to see how it goes and just jumped in. And what I really liked about it was, it was, it was almost like an adventure. Like I, I you know, it sounds a bit sort of like childlike or whatever, but I had this sort of almost like childlike wonder with it. So what you can just, they'll give you a gig. And then like three weeks later, you're. Page, and you're writing these jokes and then you can say them in front of you know and like, and then, and then just building the routine building routines out of all that and yeah it was it was um I was sort of in wonder until um money started changing hands <laughs> that's when the, that's when it started to get serious it's like ah the agreement has changed now this is different
0: in what way? So what, what do you
2: mean by it was, it was, it felt wrong to be paid or, or it was... No, no, no. I mean, I was happy <laughs> to take the money. What I found difficult was that before I was just doing it for the love of it. And there was no, there was no agreement about money. So when money started changing hands, and look, it was only like 10, 20 quid to start with, but it just meant that there was a different arrangement. Now I'm, now, yeah. I, now I've got to deliver because it's somebody's money that's coming into my pocket because of what I said I can do. And I for about, I don't know, maybe about a month or two, I was going around to like all the comics that I was sort of gigging with at the time going, yeah, I'm probably, yeah, probably going to stop doing stand up because, yeah, it's not really working for me. And they were like, yeah, whatever, because they could all see that I was, you know, deep down I was enjoying it. I just having to sort of just navigate this new relationship with it whereby it's a job because you're now getting yeah. paid for it so that that was really what what changed but then you know I somehow I pushed through receiving money and got okay with it <laughs> as you do um yeah I can't remember what was your question i was <laughs> just like talking about getting paid
0: no it was just about I, I was just interested to see what made you go into what what your route was to getting to where you are now because obviously um we were discussing about how you both do lots of other different things yeah yeah um yeah and with the tv writing for you athena what what came first was it stand up or the writing or is it all kind of always no, been it was, hand very, in hand?
1: it was very much stand up i only got into writing mainly because when i had a daughter two years ago and I, it was just something i i thought i should start whilst i'm at home um and i was really conscious of the fact that it, similar to what i think we were saying off broadcaster on like just doing stand up as a career is isn't a long-term sustainable thing so I always had the ambition of kind of learning the craft of of, of sort of comedy writing um, and, you know, being at home sort of breastfeeding is a really good time to, to invest in that, especially because I, I worked full-time up until November. I had my day job up until last November. So I was doing basically full-time comedy, full-time day job work. So I didn't really have the time to, because um, um, I'm terrified of being broke. It's one of my worst yeah. nightmares. Nothing is more important to me than financial security. Um, so <laughs> I never quit my job. Um, until it became unsustainable but then you know once i i had i was able to really invest in in all the sort of comedy writing that i had been doing up to that point but definitely the stand up The stand up always comes first it's so easy to get into you walk into a yeah. pub and you just chat shit for five minutes you walk out again you know it's so egalitarian i love that some of the nicest things about about stand up uh, people give stand up a hard time particularly the open mic circuit which is as horrible as you can imagine but without it you don't really you know, that's, that's your, that's your training ground, that's your sand pit. Um, and it really is true. Anyone, I mean, it's not, doesn't treat everyone the same, but everyone has access to the opportunity to perform. Um, and that's definitely very much how I started. And yeah, there'd be no, I wouldn't be here if I hadn't, if I hadn't
2: been doing stand-up for a few years. The, the open mic circuit is much more inclusive as well. I don't know if it still is. I haven't, I haven't done a gig for a long time, but what I felt was there's a much broader range of it's human a, being in the open mic that, circuit. Yeah. And then there's something that happens as you move up the, the food chain, as it were, where just, some s- certain, yeah, just a certain sort of monoculturedness comes in I the higher up the food chain you get. I would suggest what happens is management. So lots of people
1: at the bottom, well, yeah, of of that kind of pyramid are just in it together, um, and then people who, who then managers pick up certain acts, um, mm-hmm. and, and I can't complain because I was one of them. But I always have to remember why, you know, youngish looking, um, probably. It's interesting because it's not all not all managers are bad. Like I'm a very political act, you know. I think I was I was signed at a gig when I when I had a particular joke about um, how mixed race relationships weren't progressive because. You know on the plantations why people couldn't start sticking their dicks in us and that's quite a harsh thing to say right do you know what I mean that's not an easy thing for people to listen to so I don't you know it's not like managers don't take risks you know I always remember that yeah. I'm like why why are we having this conversation do you know what I just said um but it's 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 so it's not this isn't a broad brush issue I have with with agents and managers but what happens is once you get it's kind of what Andy says to answer about money it relates to the thing once it starts becoming a commodity and it stops being about learning the craft and it starts being about well who can take what you do and sell it to people? That's yeah. when you start getting the issues of well, you know, what, what audience? What's your brand? What makes me so sad? It really makes me sad is when people get signed after five minutes for comedy, mm-hmm. like, but they get si- they get signed up at the back of a brand. Oh, you're, you could be branded, and you, and you can see it with your eyes. And I can look at this act, like I can say you're so talented, but you've only got five minutes of comedy. So I know for a fact you're being signed because of your potential as a brand. You know, that's the only way you can explain it. If you've only got five minutes and you've got a manager, then that's it, they see a brand in you. And then they can, you know, once you're in that stable, they can give you advice. You have access to advice and opportunities that other people don't have. So I think that's yeah. where it starts to get a bit prejudiced. And mm. you can um, mitigate against that by building a brand. You know I mean? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with hitting hit the open mic circuit and saying, well, how do I dress? What does my hair look like? You know, who I, who's my audience? But yeah, social so media content. as well plays
2: into that for sure.
1: It takes so much romance out
2: of it. Mm. You know? Especially if it's like yeah. deliberately done rather than you're just authentically being whatever that branding may turn out to be. I, I did notice that, you know, because I went to the States and did stand up there, and I feel like just generally people there have just got a much more sort of acute sense of business like performers do. But that was one thing I noticed about people on the stand-up circuit there is they seem to be really aware of what their branding was. And they know that casting directors go to gigs because they haven't got a big theater scene. So there's not, you know, in terms of, you know, getting picked up for acting roles, you're not, you're not going to get seen in some show. So they, they, they use, uh, you know, the stand-up nights to get seen by casting directors and you watch people, the level of, um, you know performance skills is way up here but the writing is (laughs) through the bottom of the floor but it doesn't matter because that same five minutes that you're talking about will get them the role as the best friend in the new such and such sitcom and that's it is it, it is kind of like like you say about the romancing it is quite the most unromantic thing you've ever seen in terms of you know the the joy and the the you know just the loveliness of stand-up and what what i feel like it's really meant to be about because it's quite quite calculated but it works and that's also the business and and america is very very business orientated the industry is way we're like a cottage industry compared to them anyway so i'm not surprised that people are like that but it's just quite um yeah it's quite a sort of calculated almost cynical approach really
0: it's interesting what you've both been saying about the money side of things. It's something I picked up on with what you said, Athena, about the fear of not having money. The fear of that is what propels a lot of people forwards and I actually think that's probably one of the better reasons to continue with a career. As you say, it's kind of a borderline. You're treading the fine line of manipulation and also just needing to get by, pay your mortgage, etc. But But I, I guess privilege comes when you don't have that biting at your heels the whole time and thinking shit I've got to get paid I've got to do this I've got to do that writer's room job that I really don't want to do Um, and I think it's interesting how money actually hasn't really come up in any of the conversations we've had on this podcast but it's super important in the comedy world.
3: I can give you an example of when I went I was called in for an interview with a broadcaster and they were looking at getting people in for various different levels of commissioning and and the woman who's amazing and wonderful looked through my um cv and she goes you've kind of done a bit of everything in comedy you know you haven't just stuck to um live or festival or tv and she goes uh can you tell what, what was the reasoning behind that and i was like survival if someone offers me a job in comedy and I do not have the job in comedy at that point I will take that job and it and it kind of she looks at me as if to say oh and she goes you You didn't want to specialize and I was like regardless of whether I wanted to specialize at that point I had to do this now you know maybe this is a good thing because now I have a few strings to my bow but that wasn't it wasn't like it was a decision that I could make oh I'll just I'll just wait for that comedy um, directing job to come my way. I'll just wait for that next one. I'm just going to do comedy directing. Couldn't do that. I had to just take that on. And that's something that when people go, oh, why aren't you doing more of this then? And I'm like, because I now do a bit of everything. And that's that is a financial reality that for some people, they don't have that. They can absolutely just say right I'm just doing this and I'm concentrating Mm. on that and that does accelerate your career progression in one
2: it it changes the game if your motivation if you've given yourself a little bit of freedom financially and obviously that speaks to certain um, privileges that people have in terms of their, you know the background that they've come from I I remember um, just before I went to the states before I decided to do that I, I thought, <clears throat> I've, I've got enough money for a deposit. I'm going to buy a flat in a nice area. And I was going to move out of Stratford finally, even though I still needed the jokes. But I was going <laughs> to move out of Stratford and get this nice. And, and it was all moving along. And then it, it fell f- through for one reason or another. And but, but I remember thinking on the road leading up to, you know, getting the um, survey done and all that sort of thing, this is tying me in to a certain type of work. And subconsciously, I think I was thinking, I'm not sure that I want to keep doing it. This is, you know, around this time, I was doing a lot of panel shows and all that sort of stuff. And I was like, I, but it was a real background thought. And then the job fell, th- uh, the sorry, the house fell through. And so I decided to, you know, go and chance my hand in the States for a little bit. And I'm so glad that that all happened because... I think I would be quite miserable now if I, I mean, I think I would have eventually stopped anyways, but I think I would have been quite miserable if I had carried on down that road, especially if I was tied in because I had a massive mortgage that I was now, you know, committed to. Um, I would rather live a life that's slightly below my means Knowing that I've always got the freedom, if I want to, to pack up shop and just go somewhere else or do something or just stop. And I think that was one of the biggest things for me at that time. was give, It's not necessarily financial security, it's more financial freedom. So that I'm travelling light enough that any decision that comes to my heart, not my head, but my heart that I want to do, I can do. Do you know what I mean?
0: I think that is, that is basically survival though, isn't it? It's staying agile and, and um, having more strings to your bow. I was going to, on a segue, on a segue, I was going to ask about something that came up in the news yesterday. Now, this is probably going to come out in two weeks' time. But Russell Howard and this performance that he did, and I wanted to get your opinion on it, just to go off to, off topic for a minute. But he did a performance, a live performance, socially distanced, and someone was filming him during the performance. And he kind of kicked off about it and... Um, he was saying, you know, that's not right. I'm not happy about that. I just wanted to sort of see what you thought about that. I mean, aren't we? We are quite used to being filmed in everything that we do. And I'm, I'm just thinking about it because my daughter's here and walking in and stuff. This is kind of the world we live in. Um, did you have any sort of opinion on that
1: at all? You wouldn't go and watch cats mm. and film cats. Do you know what I mean? It's True, just- yeah. <laughs> People just need to treat stand with a bit more... I mean, respect. you
2: wouldn't go and watch Cats, anyways. Because it is <laughs> yeah. one of the worst
1: <laughs> things
2: that can happen to a human being. Not just the worst musical, but one of That's the worst me. things that can happen to a person. It's
1: really yeah. odd. The popularity of Cats is us all, to
2: this it, day. It's, it's baffling. Like, it's how, it's how big is awful. Vert,
1: and why do people like cats? No <laughs> idea. Um, hey, hang on here. Let's... <laughs> You've got... Okay. I mean, cats oh, as cats. a
2: creature. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, with me. Yeah, but...
1: yeah, I think just generally, I've always said in the UK, we have a real pro- audience problem is that we're not necessarily fans of stand-up comedy, we're fans of, fans of stand-up comedians. So people oh, yeah. have their favourite comedians that they like, but they won't necessarily watch stand-up on a Saturday night or a Friday night, unless it's a hen party or a work do or whatever. And there are still, there is a core of comedy fans out there, and they're great and they're supportive but the majority of this country actually doesn't watch stand-up. I think this is a real mythology that we, we struggle to come to terms with because of our egos, but most of us don't watch stand-up. This is just a fact. Most of us go to the pub, we go to All By One, go to cinema. Actually, we don't even do that anymore, you know? So, um, <laughs> and we don't, but even before lockdown, we weren't going to, People go to cinema once a, once a year, on average. So, um, so then what you have is you've got fans of comedians going to watch them and they've got no etiquette they've got no so there's no social contract there they don't know it so i don't blame him for doing it i'm glad that he does people you know high profile comedians do do stuff like that because it kind of educates people as to the fact that we have a craft and an art form and people have paid to watch it and for you to film it and then perhaps put it out online for people to watch who haven't paid for it well i will put out content for free as and when i choose that yeah. is my that is my gift my power so yeah I'm all for that and you know um if people don't like it they don't they don't understand that what we do with art which is frustrating
0: I like how you called it a social contract as well I like that yeah that's what it, is. it very much is and what do you think so we've had some feedback from some people that have been doing online gigs throughout this uh Lauren Patterson was saying about how when she was doing an online gig she could see all the comments in the chat and how that cannot compare, and it was horrible compared to heckling—that where you, you know, you can shut someone down when you're trying to do your set, and you're seeing the comments coming up. I just wondered if either of you have done any online stuff and how you found that.
2: Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that
0: reason? <really is laughs> <I not>.
1: Or <laughs> I mean, I've done online stuff. I've done quite a bit since lockdown. Um, I've I've quite enjoyed it. My style of comedy suits it quite well. Mm-hmm. Quite chatty. Um, you know, quite topical, so I can turn over material quite quickly. What you find with with online gigs, you get the same audience members going to the same the same gigs. Does that make sense? So the same promoter, yeah. the same audience members just watch the same promoter stuff. So because I turn over material quite quickly, because I tend to react to kind of news and events and stuff like that, um, that's worked out quite well for me. As for the comments, I I never read them because I've never, it, you know, what I mean, they're there, but I just never I never read them. So um, I, you know, who knows what. What people have been saying.
0: <laughs> well actually I've typed it out for you
2: now. Yeah. That no, seems yeah. so bizarre to me that people yeah. are attending a comedy gig but have found time for admin in the middle of it's, it to, to write a comment. That, that just doesn't compute in my head because it's like if you were Uh, uh, if you were a live gig you wouldn't write down something and sort of (laughs) send the note up to the stage so why are you writing a comment in the middle of someone's set it just seems so bizarre yeah yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) uh, right so you were asking why I haven't done any live gigs (laughs) yeah I think
3: we got the answer though that's great that we constantly have as producers as well it's like how do you how do you host an online gig and how do you keep people engaged so I think I think some of the producers are just thinking, well, if they're in the chat, then they feel like they're engaged. Because otherwise, what you get is people with your show on in front of them, but they're doing other stuff. No, you've seen Ooh, them, it? You? You've seen right. them. I've seen someone and he was he
1: was messing about in one gig. He was putting Philadelphia on Soreen. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> that's fucked up. I was like, Why would you do that? But, but here's the beautiful thing, okay? <laughs> the one beautiful thing about comedy, I think this the thing I love the most, is obviously it's the thing a lot of people love, there's no fourth wall. Okay. So for <laughs> me, if I see you putting Philadelphia light, by the way, the Philadelphia light on Saurine, that's a gift for me as a comedian. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah. like throw all the material away. There's a guy yeah. having Philadelphia story. <laughs> so that's the kind those are the kind of moments that I genuinely really love and enjoy. And you don't have to be that funny, but it just sort of people find it funnier because it's happening there and then. And, you know, there's a guy putting fucking Philadelphia story. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You have no power over people, over Zoom. It's not like a comedy club where they're in darkness and you're towering over them. Yeah. They're, like, they're literally, they're sat down. They're not even wearing socks. Do you know what I mean? They're just so <laughs> you can see their corns. Their <laughs> so you have to, but again, like, I feel like I, I do think there's, there will be space for online comedy after this whole shit show is over mainly because a lot of people are watching comedy that never watched it before, mainly because, like I said, there aren't that many comedy clubs in the country because this is not a very comedy-centred um, kind of um, audience. We don't have a lot of people watching comedy. And it, all of a sudden, people are watching it now. They couldn't before because they couldn't be to go to a comedy club, they couldn't be able to go to Edinburgh you Know, uh, this well, just couldn't of, be bothered as well. I mean, it's an accessibility issue for a lot of out my of mouth? Comedy comes with yeah. the least accessible venues you'll ever get upstairs, downstairs, darkness, yeah. not near stations. You've got to go to a mate at night, all this stuff. So, there's a there is space for online comedy and for all the flaws of it. In the same way that some people can do black gigs, some people can't, some people can do cabaret gigs, some people can't, some people can yeah. do corporate gigs, and we've got some people online gigs probably aren't for them, you know, so I think rather than look at it negatively, just it's a, for me it's like another performance space that you either think, oh, I like this, or, or it's not for me. In the same way, I don't like to do stags and hen parties, you know, like, that's not for me, but some people love that kind of environment. Um, so I try and be positive about it, especially with the whole the way the government's handling indoor performances and stuff like that, so.
0: It's interesting about the power side of things as well, going back to what you were saying, Athena, about people aren't in love with comedy and don't watch comedy they watch the comedians and it's very much it felt to me like things were becoming rock star territory certainly for seemed to be a lot for more for the male comedians than for the women although katherine ryan and some people coming through but do you think that when we go back to live comedy that that power shift will remain because comedians have lost a lot of power at the moment i would say like the big name guys like they they don't have that interaction they don't how can they communicate with their fans in the same way
2: at the moment? I think people are still... I, I don't think... Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think much will have changed on in that domain. Do you know what I mean? Because there are some people that are still doing... Like Jason Manford has his online show, yeah. and that, that almost instantly got picked up by Iceland and got sponsored by them. So it's, it's more like it was just in, in... It was dormant for a spell. But mm. once we're back to live, especially, you know, the big rooms, once you know you're allowed to have people over a certain size of audience be allowed to congregate together it, it's all going to go back to what it was it yeah I,
3: I almost feel like the polarization between the big acts and the smaller acts will, will be slightly worse for a while
2: yeah because it
3: was the usual suspects that were given their online at home shows so you know or whatever formats they could fit into um socially distanced shows on tv so i i'm um, not terribly hopeful that there'll be more of a democratisation. I'll, I'll give
1: you, yeah, I'll give you an example. So obviously Edinburgh Festival didn't happen this August, and there's been a few kind of big companies who have put on sort of Edinburgh-style online gigs. Half the acts, if not more than half of them, have never even done shows at Edinburgh. <laughs> you know I mean? so really? people, people have been plugging away in Edinburgh all these years, you know, and like, but, you know, a couple of things that have been put on to showcase, you know, we're bringing you comedy online because you can't go to Edinburgh. But half these acts on them aren't the people who spent the past few years going up and down there. Like, what an opportunity to give people an opportunity to maybe have the exposure they would have finally got in 2020. Well, oh, they found, they found some other people they like more. Now, it's weird. I wouldn't deny those people work. So this isn't the same uh, why have they got work and why have my other people got work? But I just think it just shows that it's not a meritocracy and there's no real thought that goes into who gets work and who doesn't. And just to expand on what Becky said about it getting, getting worse, in terms of financially, the clubs that are going to disappear, are the, the open mic nights, the kind of, you know, the semi-regular, semi-professional, you know, ramshackle operations at venues and the bigger nights that only book certain acts anyway. So the people who aren't as established or the people who aren't as famous or aren't as well practiced, um, will not have stage time. So in the next few years, we're going to find a real, a really, a much smaller comedy scene that's going to cater for fewer people. And we're, and we're all, uh, we all, we're all losers in that game. Even the people who benefit financially, you're just gonna, because you, you won't be challenged to be better. You know, you, you know, you'll have a lot of pressure when you need to be writing more material because all of a sudden you'll be forced to do more work. It's, it's really sad, um, what's happening. Um, and even like the big, you know, some of the big promoters that put on like online gigs and stuff, you know, you looked at these names and they, you know, these were not diverse lineups. It was mm-hmm. the same old people. And it's disappointing because people, it's, and it goes to risk averseness as well because it, these are very uncertain times. So people yeah. are into very bad old habits. I've noticed that.
0: It kind of goes full cycle to what Andy was saying at the start of his conversation about, as you said, the risk averseness. And now we, does that mean that diversity is going to be? Uh, Are we going to see even more just like white, white skinny guys coming out in their skinny jeans, taking up all the slots? Is that how it's going to go? You're talking about on TV? Well, I think, I think I'm talking about stand up, and then that feeds into TV. It seems to, you know, people become these kind of rock star comedians on the live circuit. And then they're the ones that get the slots on, um, you know, like sketch compilation shows, that sort of thing. Um, do you feel positive about the future in that respect or do you, do you okay. feel like this, the risk averseness is going gonna, is gonna to change or actually because of COVID now we've kind of gone back a step?
3: We definitely have because there's more risk. <clears throat> there's more risk than ever. And people are more, let, let's be honest, like people that are employed by broadcasters and employed by larger promoting companies are hanging on to their jobs and they, mm. and they want everything they do to be a success and they want to get the maximum numbers and they're because they need to keep their job and i get that and i think the onus now is on people producers like myself to make these opportunities to make it happen however you can you and in some ways that is it's a It's a responsibility that uh, uh
2: you know producers and promoters need to take on I think on the um on the writings <clears throat> like the scripted side um it's definitely like conversations I've had around things that we've been trying to pitch like specifically I was trying to pitch something that was a comedy, but it was going to be quite a dark comedy talking about a, you know a serious topic um we have had feedback from you know um co- commissioners that they're looking for pretty sort of bold upbeat because of where everyone's headspace is, is a, you know so 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 it's not necessarily about you know risk in terms of diversity but the risk for them is that anything that's kind of sort of gritty and a bit more um you know challenging they don't necessarily want to put in front of audiences right now and that's sort of been human nature for a really long time, like, you know, MGM making all those sort of utopian musicals in the middle of the world wars and stuff like that. So, so that's not anything new, but it's kind of like, you know, it, COVID is definitely having an impo- impact on where, um, you know, decision makers are looking from in terms of what they want to put in front of their audiences.
0: And do you get a sense of the mood of the nation? I mean, Athena, I, I follow you on Twitter, and you're on there a lot. <laughs> I, I if you're Props on there to a you. Lot. But what I love about your post, it's kind of like I, I feel that you get the sense of where the nation's at, and you read the room very well. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, Andy. You're saying about so commissioners are looking to try and find uplifting projects, and I wonder if all the anger and rage that's come out of COVID, Black Lives Matters, a Black Lives Matter, and then you know the anti-Semitism. Uh, anti-trans there's been so so much debate going on about minorities and just life in general people are fucking miserable and angry i think it's interesting that you are able to tap into that i suppose as creatives that's that's part of your job is to be able to go okay so this is where we're at this is the room and where do you go with that what do you do next you you read that room and then you make your decision as to what you can come out with creatively
1: I, I definitely have a problem with commissioners saying people are invisible really because we weren't happy stuff because I very much believe in documenting culturally the times you know and we don't do that very well we used to in the 80s we did it we did it we, mm. up, we had boys from the black stuff we had my beautiful laundrette we had all these really cool yeah. things um and then it, it suddenly it became men behaving badly and you know things like that and it's and that's fine um but that's a kind of a kind you're complicit in in kind of cultural denial there is so much humor to be drawn from from where we're at in this country right now it's so funny there's nothing funnier than what is happening every day in in our parliament in our in
2: our homes and our businesses
1: you know, and then when I say funny, I mean fucking disastrous. <laughs> you know.
2: What I mean? but like, that doesn't mean. But so, that doesn't mean you know, that the comedy can't reflect that. It's the style, yeah, tone and, rather than content.
1: And you know, being denied the opportunity to speak about these things, um, you know, honestly, and to have that conversation using like the craft of comedy is really frustrating. It's one of the reasons why I like topical comedy. It's such a lovely world because you can wake up in the morning, you can open a newspaper and you can be like, this is ridiculous. And you can just write 10 <laughs> jokes about it. And so, you know, a few million people hear it on a Friday night, you know, that's, you know, that's ultimately, I don't live for money. I live for experiences like that, you know, so, um, and whilst, yeah, whilst commissioners deny the importance of those things, then, then, you know, they're just, they're just really making, you know, they're making all the mistakes, you know, it's, it's silly. Um. Um. You know that's and that's why social and that's why social media is so great and that's why I want to say one thing. We we do. We can be quite. um, We can overestimate or underestimate. I don't know what the white road is, but we. It's not just skinny, skinny white guys um getting comedy gigs okay women and um, particularly brown women and, and black women and black men are doing really well you've got like mo the comedian judy love mm-hmm. um is like tearing up social media um darren harrier um uh, uh, Mad- maddox uh he's archie he's no archie's doing great too um, light skin guy uh, Marley Maddox no Jamali, Jamali so sorry, yes sorry Bikini, Jamali <laughs> so when I think about the people who've come out in the past two years who've really like just on tv traveling the world doing amazing mm-hmm. things I think of these guys but the one thing you can say about them is they built their audiences first
0: yeah interesting
1: all of them all of them had an online following before tv or like oh what have you and that is that the unfairness of to ask people to get hundred thousand people on Instagram before you'll give them a TV gig is just—it's just—and it's horrible. And I, but at the same time, what I say to people, particularly new people, is: fund these people to create your own content. Because yeah. if you don't, then you know your your talent is going to go to waste, and you're going to get the feedback that Andy just just alluded to—that you'll be told you're too dark, or you're too this, or you're too realistic, or you're too that. So. Um, yeah, I mean, so Twitter is a great way for me to say the things that I'm unable to say in, in a more professional environments. So, yeah, <laughs> but this,
0: I think, that's is quite anarchic in a way of like making your own audience. And I think social media is a great enabler in that mm. sense. You know, if you're starting out, if you're an 18 year old kid and you want to start out now, you've you've got the ability to make your own videos at home. You can do your own podcast. Um, you know, there's so much more creative outputs that you can plug into which is great Um, where do you see yourselves in say a year from now and that's so hard to ask that question but what would you like to where would you like to see yourself
2: in a year's time um hmm. i love writing and so i just want to be writing more um i you know i'm writing fiction at the moment but you know I want to write scripts as well and be creating my own shows because I've been you know pitching ideas for as long as I've been acting not just as you know since I've been doing stand-up for so for nearly 20 years I've been knocking at the door and saying I think I've got a good idea for a series no okay fine and then going back I think I've got a Great idea for a series now. Okay, fine. I think I've got really excellent idea. You know what I mean? Like I've I've knocked on that door several times and I'm persistent and I have given up actually. I've just thought fuck you lot several times, you know, when, you know, for example, when I had a show set in a black hairdresser's and was told that I'm going to need to put some white people in it basically. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, well, there's no white people in my hairdressers. So, but you know, so uh, that's what I'd like to be doing is is just continuing to, well, get, getting over the line of getting a show made because I feel like all the no's have been good because they've made me go back to the drawing board and hone my craft and take, you know, lessons even and be in workshops and keep writing and trying different things and, you know, literature was the thing that the door that opened up the widest to me actually in the end. But yeah, I think that's, that's what I want to do is start creating um, content for television, for broadcast and for film. That's, that's about what the world looks like where, where I'm standing, from where I'm standing, because I think what can happen is it's almost like sort of liberal Racism, for want of a better word, whereby they open the door for people of color and for diversity, but it's got to look a particular way. So mm-hmm. it's got to be particular types of narratives. I have no problem with Top Boy, but if Top Boy is all you let in, then you are mining yeah. us by, by, by creating those types of shows. Create top boy, yes, but also create chewing gum, but also create something that isn't set on a council estate, has nothing to do with guns and single mums and drugs and, you know, knives uh-huh. or whatever. So my experience has nothing to do with a lot of the ways that black people are represented on TV. And so the characters that I want to create are the ones that I know. And that's not to say that they're singularly what black people are, but they're just another version of black people that is very rarely shown on TV, yeah, You know, the middle class, the black middle class is pretty much absent in how we're represented on, on television, but we're there, we do exist and our lives and our experience are valid and can be funny and dramatic and all the rest of it in the way that our white peers' lives uh, simil- lives that are similar, uh, you know, without thought shown in, you know, represented on TV, film, radio dramas, radio comedies, you know, in magazines and literature, everywhere. Mm. So so that's that's I guess where where I'm coming from is that I want the next tier of diversity, as far as I'm concerned, is not just about people in front and behind the camera, but it's about showing us in all our facets and not having us be this monolith that people want to seem to want to make us. Mm. And I I think in a way we kind of sometimes do a disservice and do to ourselves. Um, But I think it's really diversity now has got to be diversity within the diversity. Because yeah. we're, so, we're, so, we're so broad in who we are that you couldn't even really pin a tail on a donkey and say that's black culture or that's a black person. Because like every other person from every other race, we're, we're so broad in our expression, but we haven't really been given uh, that liberty as yet.
0: And what lessons have you learned from those no's that you got that you feel that you can make a change with that this time
2: around? Um, well, I mean, I could still get no's, but I, I think the biggest thing was just the quality of writing and getting to that point where it, people can't say no to you. Yeah. Like there's no, the, this is this is too good to say no to now. Yeah. My, my problem is that I, I don't want to bring myself just to toe the line. So for example, that um, sitcom that I was talking about that's dealing with like kind of dark material, as it were, I could back away from that and go, all right, fine. I will write something that's just about a couple or whatever, or a workplace, something or other. But that's where my passion lies. I think there's a story in here that needs to be told. So <laughs> that's almost the, the, the thing I wish I didn't want to do is tell sort of interesting stories <laughs> and just yeah. tell stories of stuff they've already done. Cause you know that that works, but that's not going to improve what's on television and create more inclu- inclusivity in terms of, uh, you know, what we see on TV That that for me is most important when I see when I see diversity in terms of how we're all represented then I'll be satisfied and so if I can be a part of that then that's why I'm gonna commit my efforts
0: and that's that is the same romance that perhaps Athena you were talking about before is the love of the love of the writing and the the desire to come up with something that fits your needs rather than trying to fit other people's
1: um and Athena what about for you
2: yeah let really- years
1: time bizarrely enough, like pretty, pretty much matched to Andy really, I mean it's, we're, and we're creative, you want to create stuff um, I I think the UK it, like, specifically the TV landscape denies um, the black middle class and generally black class mobility and it denies the black family, the existence of the black family um, and it, it, that has always troubled me, even as a, I come from a mixed race family but even I could see on TV like this is not where, where, where the black couples you know like what's going on and so creatively i don't i you know I, tr- I mean a lot of my ideas and a lot of my pilots they are either new versions of the mixed race family which which talks about them in a not problematic way but it's not just like oh here's a mixed race family so like, no, let's let's have them let's let's talk about what happens when you get two cultures in a room right mm. <laughs> let's talk about it let's not just put it up there some progressive nonsense like no the, the, it, stuff happens you know um and, and it's interesting, and it's funny, and it's a really rich, rich vein to draw, to draw comedy out of, uh, but also black families happen with a global majority, that's the norm, most black people relationships globally with other black people, but you wouldn't know yeah. it to watch any TV channel in this country, um, and I think that's actually really, I think it's gross. I think it's just gross that that's denied. Why would you deny this? That's so weird. And why would, and the weird thing is I've been doing a lot of script editing and script reporting for the BBC and black people themselves are writing sitcoms. Interesting. Sitcoms, because why would, why would they write about a black family? Right? Why would they do it? They're not Black commission. Okay. Yeah. That's gross to me. That's gross. So, and I use that word deliberately. It's not, it's unpleasant. Um, so that, you know, in a year's time, I want to be moving forward with projects that reflect, uh, that better reflect the life that we live in this country. Um, and, that, uh, and, that's more, and that honestly reflects our lives rather than other people's prejudices. Because at the mm-hmm. moment, Black people on TV specifically, and also not just Black people, just, you know, most Black and brown people have lives depicted that, represent the prejudices of the people who made the show yeah as opposed to you know us our lives and that's and it's so subtle we barely we barely see it and I won't be part of the problem I'll always try and be part of the solution you know and if it means I never get decommissioned I, I still got my prints too I don't care. You think I'm joking? I still got my prints too. I'll take. take, I'm impressed. I'm going to do the prints too. I'm very impressed. Well, you know, I, I like, I I, I didn't stop working until November because I feel like I'm very realistic about what it is to be um a challenging voice in this industry you know I'm not
2: stupid I get it that's right you have to be patient don't you because it it takes a while for people to hear and it takes you know sometimes it it is like a Michaela Cole getting her Mm. opportunity that go that allows people to see what's possible and to trust black creatives do you know what I mean so so yeah one has to be somewhat patient unless you're going to regurgitate whatever their views are in what you've written
1: yeah, t- totally. And I will be patient. And I just think the opportunity, like Andy said, you said it earlier, like we, we, we're, we always think that there's one path to go down. It's actually, there's loads of, if, if the terrestrial channels aren't interested, then I'll go to the streaming channels. And if they're not interested, I'll self-produce it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Or, or I'll sit on it until I become famous to do something else. Then I'll go back to it. And, I'll, yeah. I'll, and then you can, and then I'll, I'll, I'll make more money. So I don't, you know, I'm not in a rush to, to make the wrong thing um so as long as in a year's time I'm going in a a, you know forward travel is very important being in that direction of forward travel is, is the most important thing so I may not have gotten what I want but if I feel like I'm progressing towards it then I think that in this industry and in these times that's not a That's not a bad thing. And to have my bills paid as well. That's a big achievement, you know. mm -hmm. Paying your bills is a big achievement. Through paying your bills through stuff you make up in your brain. Not everyone has the pleasure of doing that in their life, you know. And I I never take it for granted. I never take it for granted.
2: I do sometimes, so that's good that you said that, because that's reminded me <laughs> to not take it for granted. Yes, but, it keep calling it back,
0: maybe have it as your ringtone. Yeah,
2: could yeah. you, please? Yeah, <laughs> one other thing to add as well, I think, as well, in terms of the diversity, because obviously we've been focused on, on you know, sort of black, the black experience, because obviously Athena and I are both black, but also mm-hmm. I want to, and I think probably Athena, you're probably in the same boat as well, of just wanting to make sure that our writing includes all kinds of inclusion and diversity. So... For example, in the book that I've, uh, that I've got coming out next year, um, Asking for a Friend, out February the uh, next year. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, I was going
0: to ask you about that.
2: I that's looked great. Up and it was Timely. Called,
0: I saw a title and it said, My Friend Fancies You. So was okay. that a working title? Yeah,
2: so that, that was the title. It's basically about these girlfriends that go out as a group and ask guys out for each other. And it goes wrong with hilarious consequences. Um, but then it, it went through some other sort of iterations and then it became Asking for a Friend. But yeah, so part of what I'm doing with that and the subsequent books that are going to follow is just to make sure that it's like as broad as possible. So there aren't that many white characters, but you won't notice that because, you know, it's the lawyer is happens to be Asian, but they're they're not an Asian lawyer. They're a lawyer who happens to be Asian or the agent is, you know, from wherever. Do you know what I mean? But it's not because Mm -hmm. they're a that type of agent it's just that's just where they're from and i think for me that's really important in terms of diversity because when you go out into the world that's exactly what you have it's just that when it comes to television that's when race becomes a pertinent thing I'm not so sure about this colorblind casting thing. When I see anything colorblind, anything, I'm always a bit like the mm-hmm. on the back of my neck goes up because it's just like, don't not see color. Just don't, <laughs> don't mm-hmm. make prejudicial decisions based mm-hmm. on it. But look at how the world is. People have Nigerian lawyers, they have, clean, uh, you know, whoever cleaners who are English, then they have, uh, you know, the person who drives their buses from, so, so, so show it all, but, not, but don't, show it, don't show those different races because that's all that person does. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just show, show the breadth of, 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 of diversity that's out there in the way it really is in the world, not how it is in your sort of little bubble of the world. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Because I imagine that a lot of the time when you get sent scripts through, do you kind of look at it and go, oh God, you know, when you see the character breakdown, do do you ever get to read scripts that don't specify the race of the character? Do you ever get that?
2: Most of the time, if I get a job, an acting job, it is because it specified the race. I very, in fact... I've internalised this belief that I can look at a thing and go, that's a white lady's job. Even though they say that, the, that it's like looking at all ethnicities, this is a white lady's job. And even with curfew, it was, um, you know, the, the, fam- the family story uh, uh, that I was, you know, the mum that I was reading the role of the mum it didn't mention race. And I just thought, well, there's, there's no way this, I'm going to get this job. And then they told me that Adrian Lester was playing the dad. And I was like, it's going to be a mixed family then because there's no way they're going to cast two black kids mm. on two dark skinned black people. This is the thinking now because we've been so conditioned with how the yeah. industry is. I said, there's no way they're going to cast two black kids. So, so it's obviously going to be a white woman who's going to get the role of the mum and then they can cast two mixed kids. So I went in red, got the job. I was like, What? Like, I literally didn't believe it because how the industry is, is so, it's so rare that someone like me would get a job like that where race yeah. bears literally no relevance to the point where even I saw the storyboards and the, the woman looked kind of, she looked kind of white actually um, because it must've been done before I got the job. And I was like, they so, they so really honestly looked for just a family mm. and maybe they did have a black family in mind, you know, or whatever, but they uh our our ethnicity had nothing to do with the storyline i don't think we even mention it our because black black people aren't at home b- being black we're being people it's only when yeah. we go out into the world that we become black you know by 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 contrast sort of thing so so these people were just trying to survive this horrible night in <laughs> this horrible race rather than it being anything to do with their ethnicity and that was a real joy to play of just like Happening to be black rather than that. That's the only reason that's, that's why, that's why this, that's how this role has been written. But how
0: lovely to break your prejudice as well in such a positive
2: way. Yeah, it was an, it was a nice experience and yeah, props Mm. to Sky for doing that. But that doesn't also mean that people shouldn't be now shouldn't be writing in characters of color. Obviously. Yes. sometimes, a lot of the time actually you need to do that but because people's prejudices when they're writing is to default to white for all the characters so that's why black and brown characters have to be written in still but it was just really nice that in that that instance they you know they cast a black family but our blackness was nothing to do with the storyline that's
0: great and and you're also one of the judges for the funny women writing award i just have to get a plug in for that
2: yeah yeah i'm excited about that
0: Is it the comedy shorts? Oh, sorry, yeah,
2: yeah, uh, yeah, comedy <laughs> shorts. That's right. yeah, I know what I'm judging. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so um, it's interesting, because, uh, Athena, you were talking before about when they were doing these online Edinburgh things, and lots of people getting platformed that wouldn't ordinarily. How do you feel about making your own content and filming your own comedy shorts? Is oh, that something I've, you've done
1: before? I champion it. It's not something I've done enough of. Um, I think it is a really good way to... Um, to kind of learn your craft, but also learn different crafts, filming, writing, so and so forth. Um, and like I said earlier, like if you're like what you know, a quote unquote minority comedian, it's a really good way to bypass these many gatekeepers that might otherwise get in your way. Um, the other, but it's not the only way. It's just a, it's just a really good thing to do. And all you need to do to do it is is have a phone. You know, that's all you need. <laughs> Um so create creating your own content is so is a i feel so essential and so important um and um you know what whatever your goals are um behind that it's you, you know if you can have stuff you've created yourself you know that underpins it that that can only benefit you whether or not it's seen by ten people or hundred thousand people
2: it's it's still it's still worthwhile um i i have a question for you um because you're you've got um a better sense of what, what's going on on the scene and stuff but i felt like as i was coming to the end of my time as a stand-up i felt like comedians were quite reluctant to put material online not sketches or characters but like sort of stand-up material in terms of putting it on social media. Is that still the case? Are the people still a little bit sort of... Because no, obviously no. that means you've got, to write, write a lo- you've got to write a lot to be able to regularly do that.
1: I think that's changing. Um, and I'll give you a really good example. You must know Kay, K Kurd. He is a comedian over here yeah. and just doing doing amazing stuff. Really, real funny guy. Um, and he filmed a special. And next year he was on the Apollo. <laughs> you know, like, because he we, we filmed a special. He had a great management behind him. He filmed it professionally. He didn't just like... Yeah. Film it. he filmed it right and um and it put it on youtube got loads of hits not wait so he yet. put he
2: filmed a special and put it on youtube yeah, for free it,
1: yeah yeah but i should i should stress that he'd been working as a comedian for quite some time oh, no no no. but i'm yeah, just like the, the fact that yeah, it's he, not behind
2: a paywall he, or something that's he, the he, bit he, that i'm like mm, that's let me, let me put it this way okay you
1: can pay so i don't pay this much to go to Edinburgh i don't know why people do some people pay to, <laughs> Honestly, when people tell me these prices, I'm like, what, where are you going? I don't, it doesn't cost me that. Much. But <laughs> yeah. some, some people pay 10 grand to go to Edinburgh. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't, I want to stress that very much. And anyone who wants to go to Edinburgh and not spend 10 grand, get, get at me. I'll tell you how to do it because 10 grand is ridiculous. But if some people spend 10,000 pounds going to Edinburgh Festival, spend four grand, film your hour, put it on YouTube. 100% agree. Okay. Excellent, Excellent advice. On, get some high-definition cameras, get a re- pay, a re- pay a really good director, pay yeah. maybe Becky, <laughs> get an editor, you know, and stick it on YouTube. Why, you know, it's, you know, and if you, if you don't feel good enough to do that, you're probably not good enough to go to Edinburgh.
2: <laughs> wow
1: that is that is excellent
2: advice if anyone has listened to it, it was just worth it for that moment
1: i don't know why i've not done it myself personally and it's i i'm just i can be quite um i'm very much i'm very much a procrastinator do you know what i mean and i'm also enough, a bit shy so it's very hard to kind of. I'm going to hire a venue and I'm going to put people in it. I've got cameras. Oh god, it makes me feel. Very oh, it's so hard.
2: arrogant, isn't it? Like yeah. putting yourself out there like that. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It will probably in the long term be a big regret of mine that I don't have it. Like I've written three hours, you know, what that I don't have one of those hours, on you know, on camera, on tape to put out is is really silly.
2: I would say as someone who did two hours at Edinburgh and toured them and stuff who didn't end up, you know, because I I got uh, I got in at the tail end of the sort of DVD gold rush. um, But my you know, deal didn't come to anything because the bottom fell out of the market. I would say, yeah, definitely. It's it's a good thing to have that hour just for posterity, you know, because that's the one thing that I feel like I would like to do is have some stand up on tape, which I don't, you know, like a full length show, which I don't have.
3: I think it's all about making your work work for you and having stuff online. It's just another resource for you. You know, you've, you've put all that time and effort into a show and actually intrinsically once it's finished, if it's not captured, yeah. it, it's gone. Yeah. And, then, and, there's, and there's just a whole digital world that you can exploit. And I think, I mean, that's why creating like a, awards like best web series, because I think, in Britain, we are going to catch up with what's already happened in America, which is the industry watching web series and going, oh, hang on. Oh, look at Mm. this uh, with awkward Black Girl. And Broad City as
0: well.
3: Getting that on or high maintenance, like going, oh, what are these kids doing? And actually watching it. We're kind of getting there here in the UK, but just you would be surprised how many people are now slowly in Britain copping on to that. And watching what's out there online, and even if it is you putting your material out there, just from a stand-up set, and it's ten minutes, and it's out there, you would be surprised who is now looking and Mm. watching. Mm. And and like I say, it costs nothing to put it onto YouTube, and
2: it it's just there. Your work is working for you. Well, I mean, just circling back to what we were talking about at the beginning as well. we need to think long term with this, our involvement in this industry. And so we need our work to be working for us. Do you know what I mean? We need things that either can, in terms of opportunity, create something or in terms of income, create something because you don't want to get to 50, 60 or whatever, and be relying on having to gig, you know, just like cash in hand gigs or whatever you want ideally you want to start thinking about, okay, how can I long-term, how can I create longevity in this for myself that isn't going to ring me dry, you know, in terms of my energy. So, mean, that's also one of the, my, my the reason uh, I want to write as well is it's just intellectual property. All of that yeah. stuff can be passive income for you. And especially if you've come from sort of, you know, socially economically disadvantaged environments, generational wealth isn't part of your you know it's not part of your family history and so but that doesn't mean that you you can that doesn't mean you can't start it so generational wealth can start with you but that means taking a sort of more of a long-term approach to um your career and it doesn't mean being a bit more strategic but it doesn't mean that you can't be coming from the love of it still too but you just have to sort of be thinking long game
0: i think as well seeing yourself as a product in a non-manipulative way and giving yourself the permission because what i think is actually you've suggested is genius but mm.
1: to, to, to uh, go right do you know so what it. Done it though. I i'm not the genius here because i haven't done it you know but that's because you
0: know. that's maybe you need to, you need to pretend there's a little Athena on your shoulder going right we've got to make that show now come on hurry up you've got to give yourself that permission to do it it's easy to say it to other people but actually the guys that do it primarily guys because it's quite a bold decision to and also financial as well to go I'm going to take a chunk of money and I'm going to make my own show of myself filming me it does feel like you know we joked about it but it does feel like quite um feels. it might feel vain it might feel um selfish or whatever but It's strategic.
2: It's an investment. You know, actually at the end of the day, four grand isn't that much money. And I would Mm -hmm. venture that you probably, you probably could get that money on a business loan. Yeah. If you, so so then you can just pay it off over a period of time. But I mean, if you really do believe in yourself, then there should be no fear really in backing yourself. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like just put but stepping out boldly and saying, listen, my stand-up's good enough that I can could, I could put it on YouTube for free <laughs> and get people to watch it. Do you know what I mean? And then if that happens to get leveraged into a bigger opportunity, then even better. Or if not, just put it behind a paywall or put loads of ads on it or, or something so that it can generate for you.
3: Put ads on it. A-roll, B-roll, C-roll. Put it all in as well. <laughs> Absolutely don't invest thousands in filming a show. You know, I've seen people who've put on their they've even put on their footage from like, say the comedy store or they put, you know, even like comedy virgins who film stuff for free, they put it up there and that's how someone's noticed them. And I guess that's what promoters are now doing as
2: well. They're looking online at people's videos, maybe not at the moment, moment, but um, it's their shop front, isn't it? It's, it's that person's, that performer's shop front. Exactly. And so, yeah, it's just that you want, that's what you want to use to get people to come in and buy
3: I think looking at the positives right now, what we have as creators and what you have as performers are, uh, is, a, is like you say, it's, there's a big marketplace that everyone, almost everyone, if you've got a smartphone, you've got access to this marketplace. And that's something that, you know, it, it should, should the current situation have happened in the 90s. Oh, we'll yeah, all
1: be, we'd all be fucked.
3: Yeah, we'd all be like utterly buggered. Um, but we have to be really aware of that there are things out there and you know what the, it's about just I guess hustling in various different mm-hmm. avenues and and you know I won't go into uh, Alexis knows but you know all of us have been doing this for a long time and sometimes it's like oh god how long do I have
0: to keep going but it does pay off because you hustle in all these different areas so final notes, we've got back yourself. Now that means in all, way, all senses, financially, confidence, permission, um, film yourself, go out there, do it. Any other words of wisdom, for maybe, because well, there will be people starting out in the industry. I know it's hard to imagine because there isn't an industry at the minute, but there'll be people sitting listening to this who are just like quite fresh and new to it. And, you know, we want to give them some inspiration. So any last, any last notes for someone who might be starting out?
2: I think it's just kind of funny that we're silent. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to see how long I could go for, but I broke it. Um, Any final words? I mean, it always comes down to the same thing because there's so much that can happen that all you can really say is just go for it. If it's real for you, you will keep going regardless of how hard it gets and if it's not real for you as in this is not really the path for you after all then when you come across difficulties you will want to turn back and you will turn back and that's okay because um i read this really great book called um, the subtle art of not giving a fuck and in it he he talks about you know, that, that experience of wanting to be a rock star. So he, you know, he gets a guitar and he learns the guitar and he starts doing gigs, but he realizes it's kind of boring and it's not his thing. And he gave himself permission to say, no, thank you. That's okay. He realized he didn't want to be a guitarist. He wanted to be a rock star. And that's very different because the road to being a guitarist starts now with you picking up a guitar, whereas the road to being a rock star is predicated on you having some sort of success. And that might not happen. And if you're not willing to take all the steps to get there, then, you know, it, it can't possibly happen for you. So if you really want to be a stand up or if you really want to be in comedy, then just start and find your way in it. And uh, if it's real for you, you will keep going. Because if somebody had told me at the beginning, like even when I just started acting, that my career as a performer and a writer and a creative was gonna be this hard. (laughs) If they told me all the things I was gonna go through, how many times I would have been told, hell no. In whatever polite way that, you know, decision makers find to tell you, I would have, I wouldn't have been able to do this, but because I love it so much, that's what's kept me going and taking it to, for the most part, one day at a time. So if it's real for you, do it and you'll find a, a path will open up. Like it's that thing of like, you don't need to know what the whole journey is. If you're driving down a dark road or a dark country road, and you put your headlights on, you only need to see that ne- the, your headlights illuminate the next 20 feet. And that's all you need to be able to find your way home. So in terms of starting a comedy career, just turn your headlights on and just keep driving and you'll find the path that's meant for you. Great
0: advice. Athena and Becky, you're going to be setting up your own little Edinburgh, uh, sorry, filming live live uh, comedy business. I feel like it could happen.
1: Yeah, sure. I've not got no skills that. I, I <laughs> you can got can Prince too, honest. babe. You got no, Prince got too, come on. Uh, I can organise the shoot. I can organise yeah. it. Yeah. Do you, do you and I do highlight reports and all that stuff, but um, that's about that. That's about it. And um, I maybe give you a few extra jokes for free. But um, yeah.
3: Well, as you know, Alex is my my one year plan. Um. I am, I mean, I do develop comedy for TV, um, and I've got my own slate, and it is about, it's about people like myself not having to write about being, a, you know, a mail a bride or whatever, because that's not my experience, and that's not what I want to write about, or being in a forced marriage, because that isn't it, and it's about actually people of color and different ages and different class. I mean, that's the whole thing we didn't go into, but people of different classes being able to just be able to mm. get on there and share their stories and make people laugh. Uh, so putting that slate together um, and with a production company. Uh, so, yeah. Um, and all of this, I think, is about there's so many different personality types that go into comedy and all the different roles that are in comedy. But the one thing that you'll have to have over the years is just that ability to deal with disappointment and the ability Mm, to kind of keep going. Just go (laughs) like, yeah, that was deeply, like you say, Andy, if I'd have known back in the nineties that I'd still be photocopying occasionally on production, (laughs) (laughs) terribly happy about it. But, um, love comedy so and i want to i want it just to keep going and keep getting better so but
2: that's the thing is if you if you love comedy then that will carry you through the challenges it won't take mm. away the pain or whatever or the difficulties but at least there'll be some sort of ground level experience that keeps you wanting to move forward
0: and i think that's it we've all got the romance of comedy today that's what comes through from this conversation hopefully When people listen to it back, they'll be really inspired. I know you both have really inspired me today and Becky as well. So thank you very much. You've been listening to the Funny Women Survival Guide. And I, of course, have been your host, Alexis Strum. Thank you so much to Andy Osho and Athena Kablenu And, of course, Becky Singh from Funny Women for joining me in the studio. Now by coincidence, Andy is the head judge for the Funny Women Comedy Shorts Award, and Athena will be hosting the semi-finals next week, so stay tuned for more details. Andy can be found on Twitter at Andy Osho, and Athena can be found at Athena Kablenu, which is spelled K-U-G-B-L-E-N-U. And finally, let's get to some recommendations. If you're missing the Fringe right now, Lord knows I am, Ken Cheng has created an Edinburgh Fringe Simulator. So you can find that at Ken Cheng Comedy. And also check out Shedinburgh. It's an online version of the Beloved Festival. Plus, our former Survival Guide guest, Kerry Godleman, has now launched her own podcast, Memory Lane. So get it where you get your podcasts. In terms of funny women events, it is awards frenzy time, girlfriend. Semi-finals are next week on the 1st and the 3rd of September. And of course, next Wednesday, the 2nd of September, don't forget to book your tickets for The Time I Almost and that is my comedy storytelling night collaboration with Funny Women that um, is is basically a fundraiser for domestic abuse charities so please get a ticket for that and spread the word. So for more information and tickets for any of the events I've mentioned please visit funnywomen.com and finally if you want to find out more about me I'm now on twitch.tv forward slash Alexis Strum or check out thetimeialmost.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, download, rate, review and share this podcast. Your ongoing support means the world to us. It really does. Stay funny and stay safe.